0: You are tuned in to Ignite Radio Live. We believe one of the greatest desires and needs of every human person is for not simply friendship or just for mission, but missioned friendship. And as we go forward as a movement, we want to provide opportunities to make that happen. In the next hour, we give you a front row seat into a men's gathering, a gathering of brothers who are committed in the state of Ohio to really see the kingdom come alive. The auspices were really simple, just a gathering for some good food and beverages, and we had a speaker to edify us. And uh, you're going to hear some of the great conversation that took place there. We intend to do more of that. And if you want to find out more about the movement behind this, we encourage you to go to Pentecost365.us. That's Pentecost365.us. With no further ado, let's go to this men's gathering unplugged. The pro-life cause is woven into all of our hearts because it is at the very core living the gospel of life, right? Christ. As I kind of go to the left, yeah, i see jeff barefoot um, foundation for life has crafted legislation that has resulted uh, very substantially and uh, making a mark, if you will, in, in life and ending abortion. I think of Kevin Kelly, who's on the board for Ohio Right to Life Society, has been uh, taking up the charge there for a long time. He used to be an executive director for what state? Michigan. My dad prayed for him. He was sick, but he was under Taft as a deputy director of health. He shut down 22 abortion clinics through things, so very proud of my father. I want us to take a moment and pray for our brother Peter here, who is... Uh, ascending, called, appointed, anointed to this inconsequential position um, for a Heart to Life Society. And uh, he's got a big task ahead of him. Um, And I think it's a task that we all support you, Peter. This wasn't the plan, but just kind of doing an audible as the Holy Spirit can do, um, that you just feel an abundance of blessing tonight and know that, that we're with you in this. In the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Dear Lord Jesus, we thank you for our brother Peter. We thank you above all that he loves you, above all as a husband, as a father, and uh, as he is now in this position, Lord Jesus, we just pray that you fortify him with virtue all the more, flood him with grace, give him a sense that these hands raised now are not just something that's on the sidelines, but a pledge that we are with him and that uh, we are gonna unite in a way that the world has never seen in this state of Ohio. We declare it, we decree it in the name of Jesus, we claim it that this land will be known as a prophetic land, as a land that loves you, knows you, that sees Lazarus bones come alive in each of our own areas, facets of this, um, we just do receive your appointing on each of us. In your name, through Christ our Lord, we pray, amen. <laughs> in the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. get him, go get him. Yeah, come on, come on. Yes, amen. So um, Luke 12:49. 49, any of you guys know Luke 12:49? 49? Oof. Come on.
1: Yeah, that's close. (laughs) There you go.
0: we are in John 3, but that's good. Um, Luke 12, 49. um, Jesus, would he ask us anything without providing the means to fulfill it? No. Would he declare anything without knowing that it is his purpose and his mission? No. Luke 12, 49. I have come to set the earth on fire, Mm. and how I wish it were already ablaze. 2,000 years ago. This is 2,000 years later. Is the absence of the kind of fire he's talking about on him or is it on us? I believe he's equipping us right now in this moment in history, in this turn of the century. As we hear prophetic messages Mm -hmm. as Catholics, we we hear private revelation resonating with public revelation in Scripture. This is a significant time, and they always believed that, right? They always believed the kingdom was at hand, and we must believe the kingdom of heaven is at hand. There's a purpose to our gathering here beyond me inviting you to come here. It's a courageous thing for us to know our appointing and anointing at this time in human history. Mm -hmm. That's it. And so I would say, as we think about fire, it's either going to be that kind of fire or it's going to be something like this. Do you guys recognize where that picture is from?
2: Let's see a Let's
0: see. You'll know, of yeah, course. Notre Dame. Notre Dame. Notre Dame. Notre Dame. Notre Dame Cathedral. The church throughout the world in Europe has been devastated. And I use that as somewhat of iconic to state this past week. We were at an encounter conference, 3,400 people. Uh, it was an invitation to know God's desire for us to be instruments of the kingdom there were miraculous signs from healings of sight somebody's blind could see people who were here could see it was simply it wasn't hyped it wasn't the evangelist it wasn't the big author It was ordinary people claiming their baptismal call to be manifestors of the kingdom to simply call upon in the name of jesus and things happened it was operating the way we ought to be operating so i bring up this because this is france and one of the speakers there He he told the story of how the church is virtually, is literally devastated. There used to be 80% who went to church in the 19th century at the turn. Now there's 1.5% of the population of France. Devastated. He began a few years ago with his wife and six kids, a movement that involved both reaching out to the poor and having these large events where they would literally say, Lord, use us. Let us be instruments of your grace and evangelize. Um, Bishops resisted it, but when there was so much power in the first event they had a few years ago that now... They've got events with forty bishops that attend twenty thousand people. It is a amazing um, resurgence, if you will, of the body of Christ. So I use that to kind of set the stage with this image that from the ashes and from the darkness, light is emerging, and God's glory is emerging. And if we have seen, hopefully looking through eyes of faith, Frank Sheed, to see the world sanely, is to see it, God bathed, look at the last two years, yes suffering death some of us have experienced that in extraordinary extraordinary ways god allows suffering to refine us to be instruments of his grace in abundance that we'd be right decreased that god might increase Theme of john the baptist so with that said as a setting for tonight um, i invited our brother jonathan who has been on our radio program before he's spoken at two home events here and with my dad bernie and judy down in dublin to just set the stage for us and i asked him to address the subject. We're not playing games. I always tell people to come here, take the gloves off, just bring it. Challenge us, how do we need to look more clearly? How do we need to respond to the heart of the Father? We're far from it, but just challenge us to do that. Invited him to set the stage that we might have then a conversation, if you will, further about that. Um, by the way, radio program, our radio program next week, Um, is airing an interview with Matt Fred and uh, Ralph Martin, the author of this book. So Tuesday nights, it's gonna be awesome, 8 p.m. and it's already actually out, you can hear the podcast, but very powerful as he talks about these key themes and he's very optimistic. Ralph Martin is an amazing leader in our church, a tremendous gift to us. So I'm gonna introduce now my brother in Christ, Jonathan, just so blessed to know you, I'm glad you are here. Jonathan Jakubowski is the director of Smart Solve, an award-winning startup business focused on sustainable packaging. Jonathan received his undergraduate degree from Bowling Green State University and master's degree in public policy from Georgetown University. Jonathan is an avid social entrepreneur. He is the author of Bellwether Blues, the founder of Champions of Action, and is the chairman of the Forge Leadership Network Board of Directors. In 2017, Jonathan was unanimously selected as executive committee chairman of the Wood County Republican Party and sits on the Wood County Board of Elections. Jonathan and his wife, Missy, and their four children currently reside in Bowling Green, Ohio. Will you please join me in warmly welcoming a future president of the United States of America, Jonathan Jakubowski.
3: Well, of all the speakers to choose, I would not have chosen me were I and Greg's shoes, to be honest with you. I'm in a room of giants. Uh, Several of you I've seen, heard, speak live in different places, and I myself have had goosebumps going back to some of the speeches that you've delivered. So I'm, I'm really humbled by the invitation and uh, the fact that Greg would choose me—he gave a whole list of names. I said, "Well, choose one of them." And he asked me. I said, "Well, I'm really thinking about choosing you." And I said, "I don't know that I'd make that decision," uh, but indeed he did. So here I am. And ever since that invitation, I've—I've I've been praying. Actually, before that, I've been praying because when Greg came down with COVID, um, I really felt in my spirit that there was a lot more for this brother to do, that God's calling and the uh, the assignments for his life were too long, we enumerated for him to have stopped short. So I had the conviction and faith and belief that he would be healed, and here he is today. Praise the Lord for that. Um, and uh, I think the Schleter family writ large, as I've, I've met several of you now and see the Schleter name, you know, I, I think the world is uh, a better place and would be even more of a better place where there are more Schleters multiplying. So I hope you guys have more kids and follow follow my brother McCartney's <laughs> yeah. strategies here. We, hey, we boy, need that to boy, happen. Boy. <laughs> That's right. We know
4: each
3: other. Come on. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> yeah no, what, what distinguished company. And I, I have to say, you, you guys, it's already been called out. You know, there's two Protestants in the room, and Peter's been trying to, to convert me for about a decade. <laughs> uh, so he's, he's, you know, he's gotten close. But I've always had this exceptional favor with Catholics, and it started when I was 12 years old. Oh, actually, 11. Um, I walked onto the football fields, dusty football fields in Perrysburg for a tryout with the fifth and sixth grade football team at St. Rose. And they didn't know anybody from Adam. They didn't know me from Adam. And I just walked out on the field and started playing. It was my first tackle football season, but I always had a love for football because I'd played flag football. And I told my dad I really want to play tackle football. And it was the only place that I could do it. So I went onto the football field, not knowing any of their prerequisites and ended up becoming the starting tailback. They came through asking each guy, hey, how are you affiliated with St. Rose? Are you at the church? Are you in the school as a student? Because you had to be one of those two to be in the CYO Catholic League. So when they came to me, I said, well, neither. I I go to uh, Calvary Bible Chapel in Toledo and I go to Toledo Christian as my school. Oh no, they didn't say that. They said, are you kidding me? Their jaws dropped, said, We got to devise a strategy. You have to come with us to Mass next week. (laughs) I'm going to talk to your parents. We have the Toy Bowl coming up in two weeks, and you have to be there. <laughs> so they brought me into a Mass. I went to my first Catholic Mass. It's the, the age of 11 years old. And uh, yeah, that's right. That's what happened. And uh, from there, it's been, uh, been a joyous ride ever since. And I've had many fun conversations. Uh, the beautiful thing is, is within the Kingdom of God and the movement of unity that we have, I think, at a moment in time in which we live, it's more necessary now, perhaps, than ever. It is, uh, it is existential. That we know the hour in the day. We know what we're stepping into. We know who our brothers are. Yeah. And I think in this room, we can sense it. You can feel it. You can feel it inside of your soul. This is a brotherhood. But I felt like sitting here, talking to you guys, listening to you, and feeling the spirit of the room, I wanted to share with you one of the inspirations of one of my speeches. And it comes from David and Goliath. So, we're all familiar with that story. Probably as Bible readers, we know it all too well that sometimes we glaze over the details. I'm going through my annual Bible reading plan, and surely when I get to the David and Goliath story, it's kind of just like I glaze over it, and that's it. But recently, I was in Israel. It was about four years ago, and we drove past the Valley of Elah. And I had never imagined driving past the valley where David fought Goliath, the valley of Elah. And as you look at this valley, you have two hills that kind of, two sloping hills up, and it kind of descends into this plain land. So, um, during this age, you would have the Philistines on one hill and you had the Israelites on the other hill. Uh, Proverbally, the high ground winds, right? So both armies are set on this stage. And what would happen is these militaries, they would wait for the moment and they'd come down and they'd fight on the plains. And then whoever lost would retreat to the high ground, hoping to recover their position. Well, Goliath was bold enough to not just come to the middle of the field and defy the armies of Israel. No, no, no. He walked to the very edge of the slope And from the bottom of the hill, he challenged the men of Israel, saying, I will take you out. Who dares come against me? And he had so much confidence, in fact, that he said that if I win, you will be our slaves. If you win, we will be your slaves. But for a little guy named David, 18 years of age, who heard this challenge from this giant, knowing that these words were not words against mere mortal flesh, they were words against the sovereign God Almighty, was inspired by the Spirit to deliver his own takedown of the giant. And when David went down the day, that, the day the battle came, there was a little brook. And when David went into that brook, he picked five stones. But notice the nuance of the stones. Were they five rough stones? Were they five rigid stones? They were they five smooth stones? Now, why does that matter? It matters a lot because if you're gonna sling a stone into the face of a giant, you need velocity, you need accuracy, and you need power. If you have a rigid stone, a stone that is fresh or new, it looks heavy, it looks like it can destroy, when you put that in a sling and try to toss it in a direction, it might not have the accuracy you desire. It might weigh a little more than the smooth stone, so it might go a little slower than you would expect. It gives the enemy the opportunity to swat the stone away and to come at you. David knew exactly and precisely the stone that he was looking for. I dare say tonight that God is looking for smooth stones. But how do you build a smooth stone? Well, a smooth stone comes from decades of pressure, erosion, rubbing against other stones that exist in the water, water that has run over it time and time again, the beat down and the wear down of life. You can't have a testimony unless you have a test. The smooth stones that God are looking for in this room, but a smooth stone does not become smooth if it's by itself. A smooth stone has to be amongst other stones, because as iron sharpens iron, so a man sharpens his friend. The question I have for you tonight, brothers, is do you know what time it is? Do we know what time it is? The late hour in which we are living, I'm afraid, has been misdiagnosed by oh so many, especially our leaders. And I want to start with a story that was coined as one of the best of the 20th century. You all know Sherlock Holmes. Well, Sherlock Holmes and his friend Forever, Dr. Watson, decided to go camping one night. And they went out and uh, they were trying to get a change of pace and change of place, and they set the tent up and eventually they fall asleep around midnight. And late in the evening, while they're sleeping, all of a sudden, Sherlock Holmes reaches over and shakes his friend Dr. Watson. He says, Watson, look at the sky and tell me what you see. And Watson replies, well, I see millions of stars. And Holmes replies, well what does that tell you? And this was Dr. Watson's brilliant response. Astronomically, it tells me that there are millions of galaxies and potentially billions of planets. Astrologically, it tells me that Saturn is in Leo. Horologically, I deduce that the time is approximately quarter past three. Why would you wake me up so early in the morning? Theologically, I can see that God is all-powerful. He is in control, that we are small and insignificant. Meteorologically, I suspect that we will have a beautiful day tomorrow. What does it tell you, Holmes? Holmes paused for a second, turned to his side, and said, Watson, you idiot, it tells me our tent's been stolen. <laughs> <laughs> I think that very much represents the situation in which we are living. It's as if we are in a house that is on. Fire, the foundation, that example that you gave earlier was something I've been thinking about. You and Sir Abraham Lincoln said that a house divided against itself cannot stand. I would argue that a house with its foundation on fire, neither can that house stand. Our house is on fire, but we're debating over the curtains. We're trying to fix and repair the second floor, and our foundation that has been laid is being bombed by the enemies of truth. So as Greg challenged me, he wanted me to talk about what the hour is in which we are living to take the gloves off, so to speak. Well, I think this is scriptural. And I think the example that we need to look to is from 1 Chronicles 12, 32. And it comes from the sons of Issachar. So these are the few verses that are sometimes obscure, seemingly glaze over these verses. They're easy to rewrite, but there's gems in there if we look a little bit deeper. And it says in 1 Chronicles 12, 32, the sons of Issachar, men who understood the times with the knowledge of what Israel should do we need to be men who understand the times we need to be men who understand the hour in which we are living and if i dare say if i take a pulse on our nation these are some of the things that i see that are incredibly concerning abortion is being advanced at an unprecedented rate at an unprecedented scale by a government that has grown at to the size that is unprecedented in the history of our nation. Probably the history of the world. Never before has so much money been spent. Billions of dollars, I say. Many of the leaders in the room would understand the specific numeration of that and the the quantification of the impact of that. In fact, Peter and I, uh, co-authored an op-ed uh, with another guy and we were challenging David French's, David French's uh, suggestions that Joe Biden was going to be a blessing to the pro-life movement because uh, it's really up to the states. Well, you can see now the billions of dollars that he's proposed and now the creation of sanctuary states to destroy the innocent in the womb. Abortion is not something that is rare, something that is to be, uh, to be uh, what's the word, rare?
4: Safe, safe
3: rare. and, yes, there you go, and legal. and legal. Rare, safe, and legal. No longer is it that. Now it is something to be celebrated, lauded for a woman to take their abortions and hashtag them online. It's, it's something now that the left has, has really built into um, a, a pin. I, I think about this in 2017 when New York passed the most aggressive pro abortion legislation in the history of our country, they lit up the empire state building and they lit it with a goddess from India that represents the goddess of death. That's a culture that we are living in. CRT and anti-racism, you guys have seen, we all know about it, the school board battles that have gone on throughout this country from coast to coast. In 2020, after after George Floyd, what we saw was a movement that was largely already isolated and existent on college campuses find its way like a freight train into primary and secondary schools all across the country with immense pressure to have conversations around these topics unlike we've ever had before but it it represented something deeper something that goes back to theorists in germany at the frankfurt school in the 19th century who had this belief of deconstructionism through critical theory and the problem with critical theory and deconstructionism is it is an anti Theological is an anti-God construct that believes that anything that exists, even if, in fact, within this framework, Jesus is a sinner because anything within the framework of power, of hegemony, those things are naturally evil and it is the duty of society to destroy those things. So Jesus was a male in an hierarchical society in and in a patriarchal society and as a result, he would be a sinner by the virtue of critical theory. Well, critical theory has now been adopted in its ideology. It's not just critical race theory. It runs deeper from that. It runs deeper to that and there's a lot of ways that it's made manifest, and it's incredibly sinister and incredibly dangerous because of what it does, not just to the political will of a party, but what it does to the soul of a human being. When children embrace this ideology, it changes them from the inside out. It's all across the country. The LGBTQ movement. Dare I say if that's the freight train and the engine of critical race theory, critical theory broadly, the caboose is the LGBTQ movement. The LGBTQ movement knew that they could not get a trans leader, uh, excuse me, not trans leader, but a, a trans cross-dresser into a kindergarten classroom to read a children's book to an audience that would accept that without there being parental resistance. But they knew that if they could ride the waves of a movement that made people feel condemned and guilty, if they could get parents on their knees, if education was about the teachers and not about the parents, if it was about systems and not students, they knew then they could bring that ideology with them and exploit those children. Well, that's what's happened as you look at things like libs of TikTok giving videos of preschool teachers talking about their aim and agenda and telling parents that they can F out of the room because it is their job to train them about these ideologies. My wife today was at a public library and what did she see but multiple books targeting children as young as six years of age on the LGBTQ ideology. It has moved at a rate that is unprecedented in our nation and perhaps that of the world. Our national borders. Our national borders, uh, a nation with no borders is no nation at all. The invasion of our borders is coming at an unprecedented, at an incredible rate. Now, there's a lot of conversation we could have around policy. I have a nonprofit that I founded in Guatemala. We've reached thousands and thousands of at-risk youth. The number one issue that causes crime in Guatemala and every other nation, dare I say, dare I say is fatherlessness. And fatherlessness is a sin that is grave. And I think the father's responsibility for taking care of his children goes back to his soul because what profits a man to gain the whole world but lose his soul? Our soul incorporates our children and our spouses. And in Guatemala, many of these fathers have left their sons and their daughters fully abandoned. In a nation where there's no justice, 95% of crimes go unprosecuted. The, the rate of murder and the rate of prosecution is at a level that is, is uh, it's devastating. Uh, Guatemala is a part of what's called the Northern Triangle, Honduras, El Salvador, Guatemala, and those nations, gangs and drug lords, drug cartels, they rule and reign and the corruption is, is at a different level. But the people that are most at risk are the vulnerable children, the girls and boys that are in situations and when they don't have a father, they have no justice. Well many of these fathers have left, why? for the borders of the United States, for that dream to go away, and they go with the promise of sending money back, and there's some remittances that come for some time, but eventually, as we know, God didn't make us to be separate from our families. Eventually, they usually break up and find a new family, and that leaves those children by themselves. I have story after story I could tell you about. Open borders destroy families. Well, they don't just destroy families. Look at, listen to this statistic. Sex offender crossings have increased by over 3,000% since the onset of this administration. of girls that make that trip from Central America up through the borders, 80% are sexually abused or raped. It is a devastating feature of this administration. The other thing that, I don't know how many of you follow this, but it is probably the most sinister advance on, we talk about democracy, the assault on democracy, HR1 and SB1 was an attempt to nationalize elections. And guys, I'm not getting partisan here. I sit on the Board of Elections, so there's a lot of debates I'm debating all the time. What's that? You can't,
1: we're good with
3: that. All right, sounds good. Uh, I, I sit on the Board of Elections, and, and I've had a lot of debates with a lot of people all around the construct of elections, and I, for example, I would defend Ohio as one of the states that I think generally has it right, are the ways we can improve, certainly. But when you seek to nationalize elections, when you federalize it, not only is it anti-constitutional, what it's seeking to do is take away voter ID laws, to make absentee voting, which is the, the voting that leads to the most fraud. Jimmy Carter and Jim, Jim's ba- James Baker in 2005 did a, a deep report on the dangers of uh, what causes threats to elections. And guess what was one of the most vulnerable elements? Absentee ballots. Why? Because you can, use, you can do a whole lot under darkness. And these absentee ballots, by the way, without signature, without verification, and with ballot harvesters, ballot traffickers, as we call them, people that could come together, parties that could go out and get hundreds of these and just have... People signed them off right so it creates a significant vulnerability well this piece the specific piece of legislation aided and abetted by the forces of culture mainstream media by the by Hollywood think about this, Steph Curry uh, a few other uh, famous Hollywood actors they were advancing this piece of legislation as advocates for it, as if our democracy was under threat if we do not nationalize our elections The federalization of our elections represents a grave threat because if it happens you will not see a Republican president voted into office in maybe 40 to 50 years. It would change the landscape for for a generation or two for how elections are voted and as we know the legislation that has been promoted in Washington DC that legislation leads to a whole other set of dangerous facets. Never before has the Democratic Party embraced this kind of legislation. Usually this was the area that we had the most agreement on, that we could devolve to the states the authority of running elections. You can find it in Article 1, Section 4 of the Constitution. It has its roots in tennis back then, but you can go even further to see throughout the course of history how states devolving that authority, having that ability to navigate elections, gives us much more control as the people of the United States. The moment you take that away is the moment that we turn this into a one-party system with one-party control, which leads to, as Rob Dreyer says in his book, Live Not By Lies, Soft Totalitarianism. The moment you change that, we might be living in soft totalitarianism today. The moment you move to one-party rule is the moment we step into hard totalitarianism. Now I'm not trying to exaggerate. I'm not trying to present threats. I'm not just trying to be amped up for the sake of being amped up. These are legitimate things that we can talk about that are valid concerns. I think for people that live in the Republic of the United States of America. You guys have probably heard the term "rolling with the punches." You guys heard that? You, I didn't know its origin. Has anybody heard the origin of "rolling with the punches"? It's actually a boxing term. Boxing. It's a boxing term. Do you know? Do you know why? How? How it came? It makes sense, right? Logical. Well, yeah, I mean,
1: just I. Yeah, I mean, you roll the punch so you don't take the force of the full blow when when going uh, opponent hit
3: you. I think sometimes um, those uh, that are believers in, um, in faith, I would include myself in this, sometimes we go into the fight thinking we're never going to get hit. I think we go in with the expectation that we're just going to be pummeling the opponent. And at the moment that we get a sting, the moment that we get called a racist, the moment that we get called a bigot, the moment that we get... Uh, they a threat the moment that all these things that have happened since those of us that have been in the public square have experienced, The moment that happens is when we kowtow to the left and allow that opponent to have full and free reign We have to expect when we step into the ring that we're going to be punched But the only way that you can be a true fighter is if you expect the punch and roll with the punch Because when you roll with the punch you lessen the blow of the opponent and you come back with a counter Might have been the year That's another way. That was a losing tactic for Mike Tyson, but yes, he had a different way of rolling with the punches. Evander Holyfield obviously pulled it off eventually. Um, I think we have to learn to train ourselves to be ready for the punches, to not be so afraid and timid and shy of being called something, and to recognize that it's our job to come with a counter. Be ready to roll and come with a counter. So how do we do that? Well, one of the things that I think really is important as I've explained through uh, a numerous number of uh, examples that I think are are dangerous for all of us and dangerous for the truth, um, we have to understand the undercurrent or the foundation of what leads to these outcomes. And I think the best book and the one that I would recommend tonight, probably in addition to Live Not By Lies, it's, it's not my own actually, it's, and he should start giving me commissions by the way, Carl Truman. From Grove City, you've read it, right? The Rise and You haven't. Okay, The no, Rise just and Triumph. your life commissions. That's funny. That's all. <laughs> hey, it worked. <laughs> he should, because I'm telling you, I've sold more books for him than I did for myself. He, his book is amazing. It's called The Rise and Triumph of the Modern Self and it is it is a, a deep uh, polemic, a, a, a study on the last four centuries. As he says, the French Revolution didn't cause the French Revolution. So the moment that we're living today wasn't just didn't come out of nowhere, right? It didn't come out of thin air. There are things that led to the moment in time in which we live, and he does a great job. The book's incredibly deep, going back to guys like Jean-Jacques Rousseau Shelley, many of the poets that were in France, the birthing of critical theory, the effects of Nietzsche and Freud, and he gets into all these guys and explains how this line of thinking that leads to these manifestations came to pass. Well, one of the things that he talks about that really stuck out to me was the philosophical differentiation between a person that is born and lives today and a person that was born and lived maybe in the 18th century, for example. So if you talk to the 18th century farmer and you ask that 18th century farmer, what is the purpose of your job? Do you find purpose in the, what you do on a daily basis? Do you find purpose in your life? Well, he would probably look at you cross-eyed and say, what do you mean? Do I find purpose? Do I have children that are living? Am I putting food on the table? That would be the sole construct of what they understood to be about life and the future of life and the hope of life. Now that question is asked very much today by everyone, anyone and everyone you talk to, is your work meaningful? Is what you do uh, important, consequential? Do you find satisfaction in your job? That question, I'm not calling it evil, it's a great question to ask and it's a great conversation starter, but it reflects a shift in philosophy that has occurred. We have gone from a society that was a society, a society that looked at world, the world from a perspective of a mimesis perspective, which is outside in, to a world that now looks at things from a poesis, a poesia perspective, which is inside out. Outside in means we look to the institutions of society, the church, our, our community, our neighbors, our family. Uh, we looked to others to help us understand what our role was in the world. We were humble in recognizing that we would identify what God's purposes were for us from the external entities that existed because we knew if our supply chain broke down, we might very well die the next few weeks because we're not going to have the very, very basic things that we need to survive. Today, it's very different. Today, I define reality from the inside out. It's not the institutions that exist that define me. The institutions exist so that I can define myself. That's why, in the last few years, it it is common, and now even forced language, for someone to say, I'm a male living in a female's body. That is an inside-out reality, where from what I think on the inside, that is what the world must accept as reality. It must be defined that way. Now the only way that they can get that conclusion defined and accepted in society is if society itself accepts this worldview from a critical theory vantage point. Now why do I say that? Absolutes exist. Absolute truths exist. We know that never would a male be a female or a female be a male. We know that never that cannot happen because God created laws that govern the universe. And this creator of natural law makes it known to us naturally that these things are consequential and they're consequentially wrong if they break those rules. Well, you have to tear that down in order to make that false reality exist in society. So it all goes together and Carl Truman makes this beautiful statement as he explains from where we've come. The problem with Truman's book, in my estimation, uh, it's still sold, don't, don't get me wrong, he still pay me commissions, is that the last 10 pages of his book are applied to what's now, what's next. So it gives you all of the problems, but it gives you very few solutions, and he himself is actually pretty pessimistic about where we go from here. So I want to speak candidly to you tonight and candidly to the church writ large. And what I want to say is, it's a quote from Kierkegaard. He says, without earnestness, we have no essential reality. Without earnestness, we have no essential reality. I think we all are benefactors of Greg Schleeder's earnestness, his earnestness in the spirit, his aggression towards the moment in which we live. He knows the hour in which we are living, and he's taking action. And he recognizes that his action might be just what a drop in the pond, but that drop has a ripple effect into all of our lives, and that ripple effect has reaches that we can't control, but God can see. We have to have earnestness in our reality. This moment and this hour with the foundation on fire requires men who will rise up and say no more. I will stand for the truth regardless of what it costs me, regardless of what it costs my family, because now is the time, now is the hour that my soul must be defended. As soon as our soul expands and we recognize the reality of our calling and what God can do through a humble soul, a trite soul who's willing to be obedient at the cost even of death, it is at that point that we begin to see an advancement of the movement that I believe God is birthing across the world in his church. So how do we respond? Well, Douglas Hyde is an author who you will love, um, a Catholic. I'm pretty sure he's the late Douglas Hyde. He passed away a while ago. He was a communist and in this book, Dedication and Leadership, he gives us the blueprint for how the communists were so effective and successful. I'm going to share a story and I'm going to talk about really the blueprint that he uses which is really found in lived Not By Lies for the seven keys to how we respond to this cultural moment. First, the story. So Hyde himself was a prisoner, um, a communist who was in a nation that was anti-communist, and as a prisoner who was a true believer in the tenets of communism, he started to see himself cracking, not because of the persecution, because the persecution actually emboldened him. The prison time actually made him feel like his mission had a cause and a meaning to it. But it was over time as he started to think philosophically about the outcomes of communism. Douglas is in my book. Douglas is a former socialist. You can talk to him about his story of his journey towards embracing capitalism and truth and becoming a Catholic. I think Douglas and Douglas have same names for a reason. Their stories are aligned in parallel. I just noticed that tonight. So you, have you read this yet?
5: Not yet. It's on the list. You need to. <laughs> Actually, wait. I'm going to put it on Amazon before I forget. Here you go. Hey. <laughs> last time a cigar at was a, a cigar night.
3: Yes, that is yours. So Douglas Hyde, in his book, talks about the moment as he's starting to open himself up to the movement of the Spirit of God and potentially different reality other than <coughs> communism. It was Easter Sunday, and the prison guards were generous enough to say to anybody that had belief that there was a mass that was going on. This is in South, deep in the jungles of Southeast Asia, and if they wanted to go, they were allowed he decided that he was ready to take that step to go to this Catholic Mass. So he gets to the Mass, and he walks in a little late. They arrived a little late, and there all across this room on this dirt floor were all sorts of poor people, slaves, and the poorest of the poor. It smelled terrible, it looked terrible. And there was an Indian priest who was giving Mass and was sharing in his homily the story about the women that were at the grave. And he talked about how they were in the garden looking for the risen Lord, who at that point they didn't know, had risen looking for his body, thinking that he had died desperate and overwhelmed by sadness and, tri- and, and tears, wondering with earnestness where the body of Christ lay. And that moment he turned to the audience as he was reading from his scripture, looked up and said, brothers and sisters, we need not look to an empty tomb for the body of Christ. Once he rose, his power now resides in our spirits, in our hands, in our feet, in our hearts. And as he said this, Douglas Hyde, looking at the ground at a man that was probably a slave late in his sixties or seventies with varicose veins, cross legged, like, like roots on a tree, his legs were across so skinny, he looked like he could barely survive. At that moment, as he talked about the spirit of God being in the hands of his servants, this man in the seventies raises his hand and looks at his hands. And as the the priest delivers the homily, continues to look at his hands as if an epiphany had occurred in his life. For the first time, this slave recognized the dignity of his calling to the power of Christ. The moment when he saw that the risen Lord could be used through his very hands, that the next day would be involved in digging a pit that had no meaning or worth. It changed the life of this man and it can change all of our lives when we recognize that reality that we don't have to be a priest, a preacher, we don't have to be somebody of cloth to have spiritual significance, that the risen Lord Jesus Christ works through our lives every day, every way, if we are willing to submit ourselves to his authority and to his power. So there are seven ways that as Dreyer cites in Live Not By Lies, we can respond to this movement of totalitarianism. Within it lies one of the things that I just mentioned. First of all, he says, value nothing more than the truth. Value nothing more than the truth even at the cost of death. Truth must be worth fighting for, living for, and dying for. The moment at which we get over our comforts that surround us, which is why I would argue that Gen Z and millennials are so lost. Gen Z is the least religious generation of all generations in American history. It's also the most depressed generation, the most psychologically ill generation. I would argue that it's because they have lost the recognition of that which is good, beautiful, and true, and they've lost their hearts for the very Lord that they must need. They've lost the reality of absolute truth and the purpose of God. value nothing more than the truth. Number two is cultivate cultural memory. Cultivate cultural memory. This is why critical theory is so sinister in many ways, is because it seeks to erase the memory that we have of history, and any nation that is a nation worth its salt is a nation that has collective memory. Why do communists spend so much time in the schools? Why did the Nazis spend so much time with the youth trying to re-educate them in accordance with their commands? It's because they knew if there was a resisting cell that declared anything except that which they believed to be true, that which they sought to establish as true, they would lose their power. Cultivate cultural memory. Three, families are resistant cells. The most revolutionary thing that you can do today is get married and have children.
5: Amen. The
3: most revolutionary thing today is get married and have children. Working on it. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. Still working. You're working for a while. <laughs> Number four, religion is the bedrock of resistance. It is the faithful that have the recognition of the Creator in our lives that allows us to know what is true so that we can defend truth. Without that, it's really hard to find it. A lot of wanderers who have sought truth for their entire lives and until they came to recognize the God of the universe, they fell short of acknowledging that which is true. Number five, standing in solidarity. We cannot fight this battle alone. We have to be arm-in-arm with each other. There's a story I'll circle back to in a little bit that I want to share with you that comes from Live Not By Lies. Number six is the gift of suffering. Suffering, trial, tragedies, these are things that we especially in this culture seek to avoid at all costs. We have so much opulent wealth and so much, so many things that make us feel great that pain is, is probably the greatest evil we can have. In a hedonistic society, pain is the antithesis to that which feels great, that which, that which is pleasurable. But in reality, God uses us. We are living sacrifices. Romans 12, do not Be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind follows the idea of being living sacrifices, holy and acceptable unto God, which is your reasonable service. I would say this, that in the theology of angels, angels are jealous of human beings. They're not jealous because of our station in life or our ability to relate to God. They're jealous because we have the ability for a period of time with free will to embrace and choose suffering for the cause of our Lord. They can't do it. They know the reality of God. We have to take steps of faith. And in our faith, when we choose suffering, it is a gift unto God that is a worthy gift that he embraces and receives, as it says in his Word. Angels can't do that. They're jealous of us because of that. And then finally, number seven is live not by lies. The moment we know that which is true, we must be willing to live by the truth, stand for the truth, and nothing but the truth. So I circle back to standing in solidarity. The story I'll share that comes from from his book. I'm getting near the the close here. Uh, It comes from a cell, uh, two stories actually. The first story comes from a cell in Czechoslovakia where the Soviet regime had descended and there was a there was a, a priest and several other men that were believers resistors one had trafficked Bibles trafficked Bibles into Czechoslovakia and was connected with a, another Protestant or there's got to be a Protestant in the story somewhere well there was a, there was a Protestant in that story in the cell so
5: <laughs>
3: he joined with his brothers in this cell there were four of them and there was a priest that was there and the priest was um, was his body was broken from years of suffering there was a prison that was created that was going to be uh, I can remember the name but the purpose of the prison was to figure out a way to break people and to re-educate them so it was it was kind of the example the pinnacle of what the Soviet Union was looking to do to torture in order to get people re-educated and brainwashed so he was in this prison for years and he came to this new location they had just moved him because he he couldn't his body was so frail that their their and their medicine wasn't working his his weapon was love and he talked about it with these other three brothers how much he loved the guards and how much he would serve them and his love for them was so motivating and so powerful that the guards themselves couldn't look at him. They couldn't bear to look at him because they knew that what came from him was just pure and unbridled love. So these four prisoners that were in this cell with this man for one year, who they washed his feet, they took care of him because he didn't have the physical capacity to do so, and he would apologize over and over again because he couldn't serve them. It was his greatest lament and regret was being unable to serve them. And mind you, these guys are, they're in filth. They're, they're starving nearly, nearly to death. They have one meal a day. It was their greatest pleasure to serve this man and when he eventually died, it was the one time that they got to in the entire year to go outside. They hadn't seen light. They hadn't seen light for a year, but they served this man and when he died, they took him outside and they put a yellow flower on his chest. His skin was yellow and it was all sunken in and woven and the guy that's telling the story comes back and before they bring him back in the prison, he looks back and he sees the picture of grace and love from an emaciated body with a flower on his chest and he realized in his moment, in that moment, that he had not lived a moment of his life more purposeful and intentional than that moment right there. And the joy that filled his soul was greater than any joy that he would ever feel. Suffering need not lead need not lead to trial, travail, sorrow. The end of it is not the worst of things. Suffering has the power to train us to embrace the calling and purpose, the plans that our maker and creator has for us. One more story. The Soviets, when they Found priests and pastors. They would collect them, and if you read Gulag Archipelago, you can know a story from Solzhenitsyn, who talks a lot about the suffering that occurred over 100 million victims of communism all throughout the world. Stories that are just unbearable sometimes to think about. One of the story there was uh, one uh, one believer that was uh, cast in prison, and uh, while he was in prison, he had he was in solitary confinement because he was the son of a famous priest, and he had. Incredible capabilities. The communists saw within him these amazing political attributes, so they were grooming him, but he couldn't embrace their ideology, so he soon became a preacher of the gospel. And so the greatest threat to them was somebody that would preach the truth. So they put him in a prison that was an an isolated prison by himself, but he'd have a guard, and there was one guard that came on the third shift, and he was assigned specifically on the third shift. And he wondered the whole time why this guy would come, because he could have chosen any shift, and there usually wasn't a third shift guard, but eventually this guard cracked because he saw that this guard over the third shift had compassion. And as he began talking to me, he said, I, I need to confess something to you. He said, well, I'm, I'm not a priest, but I believe that God has placed me here to hear your confession and to give, uh, give to you through the grace of Jesus Christ forgiveness. So please tell me. So the captor, the, the prison guard, begins to tell this individual, the, the guy in prison, he said that uh, there was one moment where this would happen over and over again, where they would take out by uh, dozens, two dozen guys, they would take them, they would put them on a sled in the, in the freezing cold in the Soviet Union, Siberia, and they would make them go miles pushing the sled. And they would get out to this specific spot in the field, and they would line them up in rows of 12. And the, the prisoner, the, the guards would go up to the prisoners, and they would say, do you recant of your faith in God?" And one by one, they would shoot the prisoner and the, the blood and the guts would fall in the prisoners next to them. And there are no blindfolds. They would watch all 12 in each row. They would watch this happen. And you know what this guard said? He said, not once was there a prisoner that recanted. Mm. Hundreds and hundreds of priests and believers and strong leaders that had found their faith in God, not once, did one of them repent because life waited on the side of them saying, no, they could have been saved. But because they believed in the existence of an omnipotent God, they faced the greatest fear that we all have and that of being death itself, knowing that on the other side of that was eternal life. And that God was so shook from the, the, visi- the visible pain that he endured himself, seeing the blood and guts and thinking how they had the courage to stand and how he didn't. So it was at this third hour that he found his hope and his life through another prisoner who shared truth. And that's a somber story to end on, but it's one that gives me tremendous hope. Mm-hmm. Because I think as we look for applications in this moment of time, there's not, a, there's not a playbook. There's not a perfect play that we can script to respond to all of the tremendous pressures that we have. There's strategies we can concoct, there's ways that we can move forward. But I do believe that the Spirit of God is revealing to us in this late hour with the foundation on fire, that the only way you quench a fire is not with water you quench it with holy fire. And holy fire comes from the uniting of the bonds of brotherhood in places and spaces like these where we multiply in small groups. We live not alone, but in solidarity. We work together to advance that which is good and beautiful and true for the greater good of the calling of Jesus Christ. And the end of that, my brothers, represents a generation that will have an opportunity to taste freedom. Reagan said it best, we're never never more than one generation away from losing our freedom. Freedom's at risk. But the only way that we fight that has to come from living by the truth. Thank you for the opportunity to talk to you guys tonight. I appreciate the invitation. I'm with you.
0: As you guys might imagine, we're broadcasting this live on MSNBC. Uh, (laughs) So uh, first and foremost, just very blessed by you, our brotherhood, our being united in mission. How many of you have really experienced a ramped up sense of supernatural spiritual attack on you personally in the past year. If you have, note as you look around you, we're doing something right, and I would would say that it's important to identify what is that whisper and that lie. Be beat up from the sin that you committed years ago, even though you confessed it and repented, that's a lie. Um, Be beat up by the culture that says you're a man and you're a doofus, because that's what culture and modern media says about you. The multiplicity of lies that we hear, I just wanna state in the name of Jesus Christ, we have power and we ought to exercise the kind of battle that Jonathan is speaking about at the personal level first and say, I recognize that lie in the name of Jesus Christ, I renounce it and I walk into the fullness of my sonship of God in Jesus Christ. So I wanted to get that out there. That's my only two cents.
2: The words you expressed tonight have been so profound and have touched us at such a deep level Mm. that, We've truly been blessed tonight. This is a profound message. And um, as the disciples said and identified Christ and the Lord said, this didn't come from you, it came from my Father. I believe the words you gave us tonight were anointed. Ralph Waldo Emerson said, the years teach much which days will never know. St. Paul said, where's the wise man and where's the scribe? Where's the debater of this age? For we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and a confoundment to the Greeks. For the Greeks seek wisdom and the Jews seek signs. But we preach Christ crucified. Let's never forget as we stumble and strive for truth. Jesus Christ is not the truth. He is truth itself. When we follow the truth, we are committed to follow him. We're committed to go to the cross. We thank you for your comments tonight, Jonathan. It was beautiful.
1: Thank you, thank you Jeff. I'm uh, Drew Blazick. Uh I grew up in uh, a lot of different kind of churches. Uh, converted to the Catholic faith in 2016. And I'll just say uh, my biggest conversion to the faith was uh, as a child, my parents always made me read the gospels. I always valued truth, like you said. and um, any time I felt error always pushed back and has led me to the Catholic faith, always reading the Gospels. And that that's what a lot of people base things, they're a center of everything. Always the center must be the Gospels. Everything must go through that. So,
5: Matt Terrell, um, I just want to feed off, you know, I, I was moved by, what, what was it? Uh, just creeping up inside me was just the word, right? Gos- the Gospels. And if we can hear that word, Throughout our daily lives, and if it's only on the weekends, um, just listen to God's Word. Celebrate that. The Eucharist, celebrate that. Let that become part of our souls. Because as I sit here and I listen to all these men that are so involved with their faith, and, and uh, it's, it's their work, right? I get uh, intimidated by the men who are able to devote their home life and their work life to their faith. Um, somebody like myself who you know uh, doesn't have a job that's that's centered around faith and how do I how do I get involved and I hear the message from Jonathan tonight and I look to groups of men like this that live the gospel that live the Eucharist that live God's Word and I'm here to get inspired by all of you to show me how I can bring that faith to others so this Thank you, man. Just what was moving in me tonight. Good Greg, word.
2: Hey, Greg, can I just make a comment about that? No. <laughs> no. In my 30s, 40s, 50s, it's the same way, you know, but the children grow up and the career fades and God gives us the role in front of us at exactly the time of our stage in life. Your stage is coming. I'm there now, I'm, I'm gonna be 70 in March. I've got enormous packages of time that I didn't have when I was 48. So the Lord's, the Lord's preparing you now for those days of ministry that'll open up. Right now you're in your vocation of your family and your children. That's, that's exactly where you're doing your ministry. God bless you.
0: Just a quick word and then Jim and then Gabriel. Revival's wherever you're at and I'm glad that you kind of declare that revival. Truly, who are those that you're going to come into contact with on Monday? Think about the names, the faces, the cubicle over, the friends, the, the clients, the contacts. God will hold us accountable, which means he blesses us now to be occasions of being blessers to them in some way. Praying for them, start there, but let there be a holy appointment. How awesome if we live that way. And I, I, I get that spark from you, Matt. Jim, who are you, by the way? Uh,
4: Jim Lang. And I just kind of want to piggyback on uh, what Jeff and Greg said. Um particularly you but actually everybody here and i agree that the lord is preparing you for ministry at some point in time but i'd also like to propose you're in full-time ministry now mm-hmm. every single one of us are full-time ministers and i think one of the lies of the enemy is he gets us to believe he had me believing this for a long period of time that i was on a, the a junior varsity because i wasn't a pastor or a priest or a missionary in i was short. a business guy yeah that's right that's right and um so and in, in God worked through, through uh, kind of some miraculous things in me uh, in my business life where I came to understand that I actually had a role to play, even though, like when I first became a believer, I didn't know scripture, you know, like Mr. Schleter here. But, uh, but, you know, I, I have grown in that arena. But the fact is, is I was being used at the time just by living my faith out. And so kind of in one of the verses, my favorite uh, verse for all of us here. Uh, in the marketplace is First Peter three fifteen. As, as far as evangelism is concerned, mm-hmm. says always be prepared to give a reason for the hope you have when asked. And when we can live with that, no matter where we are, I don't care if we're at home with our kids, if we're at the grocery store or wherever, we're in full time ministry. We all are. That's the way we God. We're the priesthood of believers, and you know that's that's the fact. And I just think that's something you know I'm just pretty passionate about that. And that's something that is a truth for all of us. We all can be he make a huge impact on the kingdom exactly where we are and we just have to keep from comparing ourselves to others because comparison is the enemy to of contentment and so and it keeps us from from operating where we should be so
0: little, little segue um i'm a i'm blessed you are here tonight because you've impacted my life and i know i've been inspired by you impacting many many other lives um, i want to just state that and i'm grateful for that uh, just as an example he's modest and he doesn't want me to say this but rich cronin uh, is put in a position by God's grace and providence as being head of, uh, owner of Cronin Auto Family. Which he recognizes the call. Everything he is about is about the kingdom. As a brother, we host our belief in beverages nights there. But I want to say additionally, he initiated periodic alpha meetings for his employees like for his whole staff, his crew, to gather on a weekly basis mm-hmm. and to grow deeper in their faith. So, I mean, that takes a bit of courage. It takes a bit of initiative. It takes a bit of overcoming our fear to say, yeah, we're a secular entity, but even for his employees invite them to come mm-hmm. and encounter God more fully and completely, small ways. Now, he's a leader. He can do that. Mike involved with Legatus, Riches too, a few of these others, but just we can initiate, and people are always thankful. You're not going to get everybody, but those who do, respond to our initiatives of breaking through our fears, are blessed by, here's the thing, five years down the road, 50 years down the road, they may say, when they see it before the Father, they'll say, you know, had it not been for them, I wouldn't be here before you, Father, in heaven. Think about it that way. Let me just put in the positive. If we are bold and persevere, there are gonna be souls in heaven who wouldn't have been there had we said no.
1: One of the points that struck me the most, um, sort of resonated with what I was thinking about earlier today, when you you so eloquently made the point about the theology of angels, mm, um, yeah. and how the angels are are jealous respectfully that we suffer the kingdom or not, and Matt's comment <clears throat> sort of brought that back to the fore for me that, like, in all of the challenges that we face, and there are many, there's two sides to every coin, right? On the cross, saying seems to triumph when he kills the son of God. And yet God says, oh no, my power is too great. This is my triumph today on the cross. And whether we suffer under COVID or whatever else, and you know, (laughs) quite a list of threats in the United States today, all of this is only opportunity for Christ's triumph to be made evident once again. And that's not something, as you said, men of the cloth do, that's something that all men and all women, all children of God do. We offer these things up. We take these as opportunities for our own transformation Our own transformation by holy fire to be those smooth stones. We offer these up for our children, for our wives, for our friends, for our neighbors. That's the power that that, that, that fuels the gospel going forward. That when we face this tri- these tribulations, it becomes the triumphs for the, the moving forward of the gospel. <laughs> been listening to a very
0: special episode of ignite radio live in particular men's gathering unplugged simply some microphones rolling while we had a gathering of men who were praying and sharing and edifying each other to really build the kingdom if you're desiring to be part of that check it out at pentecost365.us god bless you